You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. My name is Alex Thier. I am the executive director here at ODI, and it is really my great pleasure to welcome you to ODI today for the United Kingdom launch of the World Bank's 2017 World Development Report, Governance and the Law. As a self-described governance fundamentalist, I could not be more thrilled at the important step that the World Bank has taken to put politics, good governance, the rule of law, and effective and accountable institutions at the center of development where it belongs. With the new Sustainable Development Goal 16 and this report, I think that we have all taken an important step forward. We have long known that geographic position, natural resource wealth, religion, ethnicity, nor any other fixed characteristic defines the path of a country and its people. Rather, the most salient characteristic that distinguishes countries that are doing well and those that are doing poorly is inclusive, accountable, and effective governance. Here at ODI, as you will soon hear, we take the study of politics and governance very seriously. For it is not enough to know that we need to get governance right, but also how positive governance, in fact, evolves, and what decision makers must do to nurture it. This is the heart of the agenda that we here at ODI, among others, have been driving as part of the doing development differently work. And this is because, as the World Development Report tells us, that best practice or duplication of institutions and lots of great consultants, many of whom are sitting in this room, are simply not enough. The efforts that lead to meaningful gains are not mechanical. They are deeply context-dependent and are certainly not inevitable or irreversible. In fact, I arrived this morning from Washington, and I can tell you that no country, rich or poor, north or south, has a permanent solution to the challenges of governance. It is rather, <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. Uh, it, it is rather the daily work of sacrifice, of upholding values, of balancing interests of people inside and outside government. If I have one concern with this thoughtful work uh, that we're going to be talking about today, it is the somewhat constrained discussion of rights, freedom, democracy, and accountability that I would like to see more suffused into this conversation. Call it what you want, but I do ask whether sustainable development is ultimately possible without accountability and whether accountability is in fact possible without democratic mechanisms and norms. Uh, but I will stop there and segue to our speakers because we have a terrific show for you today. I would especially like to thank the World Bank uh, for joining us and helping us to bring this event together. Uh, if you like what people say, or perhaps even more interestingly, if you don't like what they say, you can tweet at hashtag WDR17. Uh, but before we turn to the panel, uh, we have a wonderful occasion uh, that our lucky 
day is being started with a leadoff speaker of somebody who knows deeply and firsthand from Iraq to Afghanistan, from Penrith, am I pronouncing that correctly, to Whitehall, what it means to govern, to be accountable, and to deal with the hardest problems we face today, and that is Rory Stewart. Rory is the Minister of State at the Department for International Development. He is an adventurer, an author, an accomplished diplomat, uh, somebody who has led and continues to lead a remarkable career and speaks up uh, for many of the most important things that confront us. In an age of fragile states and political turmoil, Rory has a critical role to play at DFID and beyond. Thanks for being here today with us, Rory. Well, can I just begin by saying a huge congratulation on this really amazing report. Uh, if anybody hasn't read this report, they must read this report. Uh, this is the, the only World Bank report I've ever read that refers to... No, well, that's probably true, too, but I was about to say there was a, there was a little clause coming after that. Uh, the subphrase was the only World Bank report I've ever read, which refers to, to Zimri Lin, the ruler of Lhasa in 1750 BC, uh, at the beginning of chapter four, and that gives you a real sense of the kind of energy and drive of this report. Um, no, the reason why I am so enthused by this report, and actually the reason why I'm hoping to sit down in about two minutes' time and hear from the others and then come in again, if you'll let me, at the end, is that if you had asked me in about 2004-05, at the height of the post-9-11 focus on governance, whether it would be possible for the international community to produce this kind of thinking, I would have been very doubtful. In fact, I probably would have said to you in 2004-05 that we had become so embedded in certain kinds of ideas about particular forms, certain ideas about fixing failed states, certain ideas that there were clear models that could be imposed on countries like Afghanistan, and that these views were so reflective of an enlightenment culture, that we could trace these back to ways in which Europeans had talked about other countries at the beginning of the 18th century, so embedded in the curious oscillation between unscrupulous optimism and pessimism, which characterized so many of our interventions, I would have been very doubtful that we were actually capable of producing this kind of thought. And what's so exciting about this, uh, from my point of view, I think is three things. One clearly is the fact that this is a report that liberates governance from being its own little silo into really illuminating its connections towards security and economic development and showing that, in a sense, everything is governance. I, I think the second thing that really appeals to me is the sense of humility that underpins this project. One, one of the problems at its worst with the sort of post-9-11 drive of this stuff was that absence of humility, was that sense that somehow it was possible to come in with a template from somebody else's country and through a sheer act of genius and will, often sitting in a guarded compound in a capital, impose on somebody else's country uh, a model of how they ought to be. I think the third thing, of course, which <coughs> appeals most strongly is the sense of the local, the sense of the particular context of politics not just the capital, but at the sub-national level, the sense that this is a report that is open to what might happen 
in a rural area what might happen uh, in contexts where it might be quite difficult to apply concepts like the rule of law, civil society, or at least in their 18th century Enlightenment formulation to exactly what is happening in a village. Um, I'm not going to sit down, but I'm just going to sit down with three questions that I would like uh, perhaps to pose uh, to get a bit of a conversation going before I come in at the end. I, I think the first one which follows on from Alex. Um, I am concerned about this issue around uh, particularly human rights and values. Uh, and I'm concerned in two ways. I, I'm concerned, firstly, because, as Alex said, I think there are clearly connections between these questions of human rights and democracy and development. But I think I'm more concerned because these issues are not simply instrumental. In other words, we don't just believe in human rights because that is an effective way of generating economic growth. Uh, these things matter intrinsically and for themselves. And they may, in certain contexts, be more important than short-term economic growth. So that's, that's a, a marker that I'd be interested in some reflections on. I think the second thing that I'm obviously very interested in is how we stop this becoming an excuse for inaction. Uh, one of the problems for something that is so nuanced, so subtle, so sophisticated, so good at pointing out how we've got it wrong, is that it could easily become a recipe for hypochondria and paralysis. Right? And then the third question is, how on earth do we embed this in our institutions? How do we make sure that as DFID develops, for example, our new economic development strategy, we really bring these lessons in? How does the bank make sure that everything that the bank does really reflects the very radical implications concealed in the sometimes polite language of this report? Uh, so thank you all very much. Over to the panel, and I hope to have five minutes to talk again at the end. Thank you so much. Uh, a good and provocative opening. And fortunately, we have a fantastic group of people to tackle some of those questions. I'm going to turn over to my great colleague, Marta Ferrassi, to lead the panel. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, thank you, Minister, for this, uh, for this opening and for this food for thoughts and these questions that we can come back to um, uh, during this discussion. Um, so welcome, everyone, to ODI. As Alex said, do um, tweet using the hashtag WDR17. And welcome especially to our online audience, which I very much hope to hear from. And please do start to feed your questions to the panel um, and to the minister for the discussion that will follow. Um, it is indeed an exciting day for us at ODI. Um, we have been working on issues of governance for development for a long time. So we're excited to see the bank coming out with you know, something as important as WDR on that topic. We are excited about the new DFID's economic development strategy that puts sort of policy and governance at its heart. Um, and we're excited because of the work that we've been doing uh, trying to work with these ideas in practice and because of the research that my colleagues, Lenny, doing development differently, my colleague Rachel, who's led, who's leading our exciting survey asking people what they actually think about what kind of institutions they need and whether they work or not. So it's great to have this opportunity to bring all this, you know, to, together in a discussion today. So um, I've got um, a very distinguished panel to help us um, navigate the three questions the minister posed and indeed the core message of WDR. First of all is Riz Felipe Lopez Calva, which I hope my Italian roots help me pronounce in the correct way, who is one of the two co-directors of the World Bank's uh, w, of, the, of the WDR, um, who will present the, the key messages, the key findings, and the agenda going forward. And then we have my colleague Lenny Wilde, who heads our policy and governance program and who has been 
sort of leading our work on doing development differently and taking some of this idea into the practice of development now for some time. Uh, Duncan Green, who is Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam, of course, author of probably one of the most you know, read blog in the development um, uh, sector and in developed institutions. Professor Mushtaq Khan, who's a professor of economics at SOAS and that has been, you know, has been leading the academic intellectual debate about why governance and economics go together and what there is um, to the relationship between institutions and growth for um, a very long time. So let me first turn to Luis Felipe, um, who um, in his past roles before taking on the challenge and the role of uh, directing WDR, um, has served as the lead economist and regional poverty advisor in the Europe and Central Asian region as an elite economist in the poverty, equity and gender unit in Latin America and Caribbean. Um, so it's actually particularly great to have so many economists around the table today to talk to us about governance. Thank you very much. Um, it's really, really an honor to be here. Thank you very much to the very distinguished uh, panel and uh, particularly to the minister. Uh, we had a conversation in Washington some uh, time ago and um, uh, it was an extremely interesting conversation. Um, after that, I mean, it was politically deep, but also intellectually very engaged. And then when, when we left, uh, we were discussing among the team that we felt that we were defending our dissertation with the minister. The questions were so deep. It was a very, very interesting discussion. So thank you very much. And I will start by saying that um, a lot of the value of the report is because it really builds on, on the work of many people. Uh, and I would say something about how we see the, the approach to how, what producing a WDR is. But uh, so we are, we are standing in, on the shoulders of giants, and some of the giants are actually here. So we really appreciate uh, the intellectual uh, and political support that we have received from, from many of, of the participants in this conversation. So thank you very much for that. The WDR in many ways, uh, the way to simplify what a WDR ideally should be is that it takes stock of what we have learned, let's say, in the last 20 years or so about a specific theme, um, and try to put it in a way that shapes the way we think for the next 20 years about that issue. So um, a successful WDR should be able to uh, correctly uh, 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 you know, uh, show what we have learned about the issue, but also try to put it in a way that becomes um, uh, practical. And I, I think that is the main challenge uh, at, this, at this new stage. Uh, of the report. So the report is about policy effectiveness. So think, think of a, a general class of questions. Um, so subsidy, energy subsidies are very, um, in, lead to inefficiency and lead to inequity, yet they are very difficult to, uh, to uh, eliminate. So this is one class of questions. Why inefficient policies, ineffective policies persist? Think of a different type of questions, you know, teacher absenteeism in many countries. Um, we have tried many contractual ways to, to solve the problem, many organizational forms. <clears throat> they do not necessarily work. So why um, a, a, a policies that are uh, in principle technically uh, well designed are not adopted or not implemented? That's another class of questions. And the third class of questions is sometimes we see solutions, like uh, typically, uh, you know, nobody would have believed that the, the, the approach to the, to the Paris Agreement for, for climate change was sort of the technically right approach in the sense that it was basically voluntary uh, commitments by governments, yet it worked, and it worked uh, beautifully. So solutions that are not necessarily technically well, you know, discussed, designed, or what we call first best type of policies, um, sometimes work. So in a way, also the report 
sort of legitimizes the second best. Um, there are typically three, three types of, of answers that we give when policies are not effective. So one of them is why the policies fail because they don't follow best practice. Policies fail because there is no capacity. Policies fail because there is no political will. What this report claims is that these are not enough. This, so these responses are not satisfactory. We have to go beyond that. We have to say, to try to understand why policies work in a certain context, but not in different contexts. We have to want to understand why capacity is not built in specific sectors or in specific uh, um, <clears throat> areas. So, so policies are more effective because at the end, capacity is a stock and is the result of policies in the past. And finally, um, we, want to, we want to better understand incentive structure that leads to the lack of political um, will and how we can eventually try to change that, that, that incentive structure. And for that, we have to understand what we call governance. So we, instead of looking at institutions as the, the object of study, so institutions as you know, abstract entities that we uh, analyze in terms of the dynamics of, of, of the evolution of those institutions, we try to focus on actors. So the idea is we look at actors interacting, state and non-state actors interacting to adopt and implement policies. And we see policies and institutions as the result of that interaction. So in a way, what we do is we try to bring a little bit more microeconomic structure to the discussion on, uh, of, of effectiveness by looking at how the agreements among actors are reached and how they are sustained over time. Uh, and that is where the, the, the functional part of the, of the report uh, is based. And, and finally, what, when you know, the place in the abstract terms, uh, which we can discuss in a very concrete way in specific sectors, where these actors interact, we call it the policy arena. So the three main elements of the report, one is this idea of what, uh, what I just mentioned, the way actors agree, uh, and whether these agreements are credible, which we call commitment, we are sustained over time, that we call commitment. Second is whether there are um, signals in terms of policy that are credible, so that the beliefs of, of the different actors lead to specific actions, investment, saving, consumption, innovation, what we call coordination. And finally, uh, whether actors are willing to comply voluntarily with the rules uh, and not to free ride on, all, you know, on others, with what we call cooperation. So these three functional aspects are at the core of what we see as um, the determinants of effectiveness. Second element is Actors that come into this policy arena have different different degree of influence. So, um, and that's what the, the power asymmetry that we bring into the into the discourse. So, the power asymmetry that is sometimes manifested uh, negatively, like uh, for what we call exclusion, capture, and clientelism, and that interferes with with policy effectiveness. And uh, um, finally, we try to understand how we can learn from processes of positive change by seeing how actually, instead of emphasizing the persistence of the equilibrium, which is what a lot of the literature, um, particularly academic literature, uh, does, uh, we try to emphasize change. And basically, we see change rather than looking at you know, these critical junctures where there are major shocks that lead to change, which of course is a special case, and certainly shocks are opportunities for change, we try to see how societies adapt at the margin to the challenges imposed by, development process, by the development process and the way in which societies adapt 
at the margin lead them in different paths, either in a more inclusive or a, or a more extractive path. And this, this idea of how you can adapt at the margin uh, is, is the essence of what we understand by, by, by change. So given you know, the, the, the tone set for the conversation, I'm going to try to be very brief and only give you a few examples of this. And rather than going through the whole presentation, I'm going to try to be brief and open for discussion because I think um, uh, you are very familiar with, with the elements in the report. Let me give you one example about uh, uh, what, what we call the different roles of law. So one of the key elements of what shapes the policy arena is formal law. Um, we actually look at rule of law, which is the aspiration that all societies have, as a norm in itself. Rule of law is the belief, the shared belief in society that rules have to be applied impersonally and that the rulers are also subject to the law, to the rules. This is a norm, and, and societies aspire. And as you saw in the report, we, we quote uh, uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown saying, you know, when, when, when implementing the rule of law, the, most, uh, the first 500 years are always the hardest. Um, this idea that it's actually an aspiration that you have to work on permanently, but in order to achieve that, that aspiration or to get to that level, you need to understand the role of law. And we have three roles of law that we discuss. One is role, the role of law as shaping behavior. The second is law as a, a, um, a tool for contestation. And law as an instrument to order power, to, to constrain power, uh, to solve these power asymmetries. So in terms of the ordering behavior, we look at how law interacts with many other normative frameworks. So you see on the left-hand side, uh, an idea of how law, formal law by itself does not, does not shape behavior. Formal law actually interacts with many other normative frameworks, and we have to understand that in a way that leads to more effectiveness. So uh, on the right-hand side on that, on that slide, you see the implementation of gender quotas. So th this is the, the, the blue dot is where the law on gender quotas was passed. In the first case, is the, the case of Bangladesh. And then it took more than 20 years for the law to be actually implemented. So, so the law does not change behavior immediately. Second is the case of Korea that even to this day, the law, uh, the, the quota has not been uh, implemented fully, and many other countries uh, in which the law has not been implemented, uh, even though the law, um, the law is there. So we have to understand that, that in a better way, and we have to shape behavior in a way that leads to the functional effectiveness that we discussed, that leads to commitment that leads to coordination and leads to, uh, to, co to cooperation, which is the, the, the essential element. And uh, one of the main point, points of the report that was discussed in a meeting, uh, in a meeting we were having before this, this, um, this presentation, one of the core elements of the report is this idea of form versus function. So rather than thinking about what are the specific type of institutions you need, we would like to think in terms of how you achieve these functions and maybe there are different institutional forms to, to achieve this. So we, we present, for example, the case of the, um, uh, the uh, Commission to Fight Impunity uh, in, um, in Guatemala, the CICIG. And this is a very specific type of form um, that, you know, where there is an internationally appointed commission that investigates cases and presents them to the, to the domestic judiciary, and the judiciary decides whether to process it through the local mechanisms or not. And it, it, this led to a very effective uh, way to, uh, to bring cases because society 
believed credibly, I mean, it was a credible commitment because it was accountable also to the international community, and citizens organized to support that initiative. So it was very costly <coughs> politically for the local judiciary not to prosecute the cases. So it was a very specific, very different type of form that, um, that led to actually uh, a, solu to a solution of the commitment problem that was not credible in the case of Guatemala, particularly after um, the, the long civil war that they, that they faced. However, you know, when, when you try to, to uh, achieve these functions again, the power asymmetries get in the way. So the idea of exclusion and how uh, you, know, you want to limit the access to the policy arena, and that is what leads to exclusion of certain actors. Or you want to, you, those who have more power in the policy arena, systematically uh, you know, try to propose policies that benefit them particularly, or distribute resources in their, in their, own, in their own benefit. And finally, clientelism, which is basically where you exchange shorter benefits for, um, in a, uh, for, for uh, political, <coughs> political support. One example of that, and I move to change, and with this I close, um, which is, you know, rather we show a lot of examples and data, but let me tell you one anecdote that we discussed in the report. There is a, a country in Latin America where there is this, you know, magazine for social events, nothing to do with politics, and I interviewed the chef of the presidential house. And uh, they were asking questions about whether, you know, what is the life in the presidential house. And they said, you know, the president just changed. Um, so you have to adapt to the culinary preferences of the new presidential family. And then he said, with no political intention, he said, it's okay because the presidents change, but the guests are always the same. <laughs> so this is the type of issues we try to deal with. Uh, um, so in, the, in terms of change, we, we look at these three types of you know, drivers of change. How you can, you can uh, you know, uh, influence um, the, the incentives, the, the contestability in the policy arena, and to reshape the preferences. One is you know, agreements among elites themselves. So we show cases in which elites have incentives to, um, uh, to restrain their own power. And, you know, actually, Duncan, in, in, in a blog called it when, uh, when uh, Turkeys vote for Christmas, uh, which I think is a, it's an interesting way to put it. Mm -hmm. Then we have this uh, other driver, which is how citizens organize or create coalitions with, uh, uh, with elites to try to bring about change. And finally, very important, Chapter 9 looks at how international actors can influence change. And this is very important in the sense that we try to shape the way we think about this issue rather than thinking about whether aid is good or bad or in, on average, which is not a, a relevant question. The idea is to try to think of, through the different instruments, how the international community can influence the, the relative bargaining power of the actors in the domestic arena. So if you reinforce an equilibrium that leads to the outcome you wanted to change, it's very unlikely that you will produce change. That is basically the main point uh, in, in that case. I will close um, with, uh, um, uh, r rather than going through the, through the whole, what we call the policy effectiveness cycle, which by the way, we, or we originally presented more linearly and comments from our consultation made us rethink how, how we present these, these implications. One, one specific example is, I was last week, no, actually a few days ago, in Mauritania, and, and we were discussing in a close meeting with the government, and the bank, uh, the bank team had a very open conversation about the issues related to governance, how to enhance the contestability of the policy arena, how to think not only about what policies, but what policy processes should be used 
to legitimize what is going to be done. And I can tell you that the report basically legitimizes bringing these issues to the table, to the discussion. So the country teams can actually bring these issues into, this, into the conversation and, uh, you know, uh, so uh, back, being backed up by the report. So in a way, what I, I, I will have time to discuss, but one of the important implications of this report, um, you know, in addition to the, the way we think about the issues, is the fact that it will allow many people to, you know, teams in the conversation with the, with the, with the counterparts to discuss more openly these issues because there is now a more institutional uh, back up and a, and, a, and a specific document they can refer to. So let's, uh, I think that some of the questions are very important, but I, I will let uh, these two uh, to, for, the, for, the fire, for the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you, um, thank you, Luis Felipe. And let's let's keep this core message around institutions being important for their functions and not just for their form. It's something to come back to, including on what the consequences are for how we all work. Before I move to the panel and open to broader issues, we've got five minutes for a very quick with a couple of questions. If you have it on the report itself, so whether it is on the methodology or you know the sort of the background, the history uh, within the bank. So if there are a couple of questions specifically on the report, if not, we move to the response from the panel. Can I? Can you just introduce yourself, Sorry, James? Thanks. Uh, is that, is yes, that turned sir. on? Yeah. Um, James Putzel from the LSE. Um, I'm wondering if you had any important discussion about the differences in the conclusions of this report from your recent document, Politics, Making Politics Work for Development, because it's quite distinct, mm -hmm. I, I think, in its implications. Okay. Thank you. James, one more, specifically on the report, if there is. <coughs> No, in that case, um, Luis, do you want to answer that question and then we'll open the conversation to the panel? Yes. Um, we actually use, uh, you know, that, that report, it's, it's a policy <laughs> research report. Is it, does it yes, work? Okay. Um, in which basically looks, looks at, you know, micro studies very well identified, basically looking at the effect of citizen engagement. So in, in a way, it refers to, the, to one of the chapters of, of this OBDR, which is broader. And, and we do refer to that evidence. And I think... Uh, I, I, I disagree that the, the, the message is, is, is different. I think it's, it's complementary in the sense that uh, they look at how they, they f how, whether information and access to information, particularly, changes behavior, changes voter behavior, and changes the behavior of public <coughs> officials. And um, the limitation in that report, I would say, but uh, it, it's a strength, but it's also a limitation, is that it looks really a very well identified empirical studies. Which, uh, which also is, it's also, you know, it's, it, it, it limits to a certain type of, 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 doc, of um, research. So in that sense, we build on that, and I think we learn from that in a broader sense when we look at citizen engagement, and with this I finish, looking at four elements of citizen engagement, uh, and uh, it's part of the discussion on the rights. Uh, um, it's, we look at voting, we look at political organizations, social organizations, and, and, and public deliberation. And we look at these different instruments, which are constitutive elements of a democracy, as fundamental elements that complement each other to make societies more, ad more adaptive to, to uh, inclusive change. Thank you, Luis. I very much look forward to more discussion on this point. We had, some of you were in the room, and we had a very interesting and heated discussion with, uh, with Shanta Devaraya, one of the authors of that uh, report in this room not that, not that long ago. Um, so let's move to the panel. Uh, as we do that, let me remind you of the three very useful questions that the minister 
pose to all of us, which I think are very genuine challenges on, uh, on, on, on the WDR puts forward. One, which relates to what we just heard, is the concern around human rights and values and broadly formal accountability in this, in this form functions um, uh, debate. The second is how this can be an excuse for action. We heard a lot of interesting concepts in that presentation. You can easily see how paralyzing it could feel um, if you know, the job of development is to help negotiate elite bargains and resolve deep political um, uh, problems. And finally, how do we embed all of this in the institutions? And we've got a number of institutions in the room today that I very much look forward to hearing. But let me start with uh, my colleague Lenny, who, as I said, is the head of the Policy and Governance Program at ODI. And what, is, what I very much look forward to hearing from Lenny is some reflection of somebody who's worked actually quite closely with you know, the bank, DFID, and other institutions on how they are grappling with this agenda and your take on how useful, how, 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 how was the change potential of WDR in the world of policymaking and operationalizing some of these ideas. Great. Well, thank you, Marta. And let me first start by adding my congratulations to Luis Felipe and his team on this landmark report. I mean, I do think, as the minister and others have highlighted already, What's key as a central message is this focus on the underlying functions, you know, the underlying governance functions that we know support better development outcomes and moving a zombie on being fixated on the particular forms that they take. I think that's very helpful. But I also like the fact that, that you talk a lot in the report about how those forms themselves evolve and adapt over time and that there is space for change in thinking about who participates in decision-making, in thinking about how, how over time we reframe perceptions of incentives, of beliefs, of preferences in ways that can lead to better outcomes. You know, I think for many of us working in the governance field for some time, in a way the ideas that you've captured won't necessarily feel new, but what they do do is they give a very useful framework and a sort of coherent structure to quite a disparate body of evidence. You know, you've nicely pulled that together. I think it's significant to have the World Bank, which I think it's fair to say has often been associated in the past with best practice approaches in different areas. So it's significant to have, you, to have this report come from you. Um, um, but I think in reality, you know, most of us who have real experience of living and working in countries around the world will find that what you set out here really resonates. And so I guess to me, the real question is, you know, how do we take these ideas further in terms of really putting them into practice? And how do we avoid the paralysis that the minister cautions us about and which I've certainly seen having worked in governance for some time now. So I guess I wanted to just very briefly highlight three areas drawing largely from some of our work at ODI. The first is that I think we need to use this report as a real jumping off point for how we take it out to different audiences beyond our usual governance uh, communities. You know, I think that in a way the report does, a, I think, a nice job of giving some good descriptions of core governance concepts. And, and illustrations to bring them to life, including the, the Zimri Lim uh, references that were quoted already, and applying those to security, growth, equity. I think the language still falls a bit into the governance trap of being impenetrable to those who, who perhaps are not steeped in the histories of these things. 
But I also think looking beyond that, while I think we, it gives us a good sense of how governance shapes conflict, growth, and so on, I think it, you know, we need to go further in saying more about what can we do about all of that going forwards. And I think that's all of our job. You know, in my experience, we don't need to persuade those working on economic growth, on security reform, that politics matters. They get that, but we need to translate those kind of big concepts and ideas into quite practical, accessible things that they can do about them. And again, we have examples from the work that we've done looking at smart support to economic reform or how you really think about politics and incentives to unblock the real challenges in health and education systems that I think try to do that, but we need more of that. Um, the second is that one thing I really like from this report is the strong focus throughout on the need for capacities for adaptive policies and institutions. And again, I think we're learning some real lessons about how we put that into practice. So, um, you know, we're talking about lots of different things there in terms of ad adaptation, I think. The need to avoid simplistic linear reforms, having tolerance for the realities of risk and uncertainty that exist thinking about flexibility, in, including around the implementation of reform processes. And I've spent the last couple of years working quite closely with different parts of DFID, as well as with other donors. And within ODI, we've been working with a range of governments, including in fragile states, with NGOs and others on the ground, to really try to support their moves in this direction. Um, and I think there is a, a danger that we see this idea of being adaptive as something we can do through an individual project or pilot rather than something that requires a much more <coughs> fundamental shift. You know, for me, it means moving away from effectively sort of command and control delivery models to learning models that can test, iterate, improve continuously as they try to figure out how to address some of these issues you've highlighted around elite bargains, around different societal dynamics. And that has to sit at the strategic level within country strategies and plans, across portfolios, be embedded within whole organisations and the leadership of those organisations. So I think we can go further in our sort of level of ambition. And finally, I think we do need to reflect on who's championing this agenda and how we sort of widen that out. Again, you know, politicians, governments around the world, it can be easy to paint them as the problem here that needs to be solved when I think they're crucial to the solutions. And in a way, a lot of the ideas in this report, to me, are really fundamental for thinking about the future of government in many parts of the world, including in the UK where we sit today. You know, thinking about how you build capacities to adapt, thinking about the future relationship between government and societies, issues of contestation, inclusion, you know, we see them playing out in our backyards. But I think we need to probably work more on how we pitch these ideas to domestic leaders, politicians, those in government, and those outside who shape opinion to make them feel they're really a part of and can lead this process. So I'll stop there. I think what's great is that there are, I think, a whole range of initiatives and efforts underway to really put these ideas into practice you know within ODI within DFID with things like your new economic development strategy but also with many of the people in this room so I think in a way watch this space but there's a lot there's a lot happening that we can capitalize on in terms of how to really operationalize and take this forward thank you um, thank you Lenny uh, for this very um, for this useful comment and also reminders of what of some of the 
you know, the, the practical challenges that are, um, you know, are ahead to make, to, to embed this, uh, this report in reality. If anybody, any of my colleagues can do anything to make the room a little bit less hot, it would be great. So prepare your jackets because it's going to get cold in a minute. That's what is going to happen. Um, let me move to Duncan, and I will need to ask all of you to sit here five minutes to make sure we have time for hear from the minister again and the, and the, and the, and the debate. Um, so Duncan has been observing um, you know, and, and working with organizations undergoing process of change has recently spent some time thinking about and indeed writing a whole book around how change happens. So, Duncan, will a WDR of this kind of um, help, will help organization in their change process or not? Well, if you're at the ODI, the correct answer is it, it depends. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that. I think it could be a watershed. I mean, it has the feeling of a paradigm shift in that increasing dissatisfaction with the previous paradigm. You've got a lot of people, when you say it's all about power and politics, they go, well, duh, that's what we know. And I'll come back to the well, duh factor in a minute. Um, uh, and in a sense, what the reports, there's that quote from, I think it's Moliere saying, you know, I'd never realized I was writing, I was speaking in prose. And this is one of those exercises in that you're telling people who work on governance and politics and diplomats what they already know. Now, that can either be a massive waste of time or it can be a very liberating experience. And I think that that's where it depends. Um, I wanted to answer um, the minister's question because I think this question about human rights is really interesting. Um, you know, on one level, you can say, well, human rights is just one of those awful forms we're fixated on. And actually, let's get into the function. Let's talk about Ethiopia. Let's talk about Rwanda. Let's talk about China. Ooh, the liberation of not having to worry about whether things are good or bad anymore. And I worry about that for obvious reasons. I work for Oxfam. Um, but the, and, and clearly that can take you in some dangerous places and you end up justifying things which are very hard to justify. On the other hand, most of the literature is at the opposite extreme. It works backwards from what we would like to be true and you end up with something like Why Nations Fail, which says, oh, China's just a blip and it's just about to collapse because it doesn't have um, you know, inclusive institutions. Well, where's the evidential basis for that, please? Um, so, so I think it's, uh, if you see it as a, a dialectical process, comrade, I think it's okay. Um, it, it, balances, it balances out what is actually a big dis, um, unbalance. What happens next? Okay, so I'm, I'm from an NGO, so obviously I have to be rude. Um, if you bring together economists and political scientists and ask them to write something, don't expect to understand what they write. I, I mean, it, it, it is... It is, it is dense, right? It's, it's going to take years to digest, personally. Um, it's not uh, designed as a comms piece. It is actually pretty hard going. And I think that's fine. The content is brilliant. But there is a big comms piece still to be done here. Um, there isn't a memorable thing. I still can't remember what the three Cs stand for. Sorry, I'm just dim. But, you know. Um, and then the other point, I think, the real one concern in terms of making sure this is contributing to this paradigm shift is the well-duh factor. So if you go to people and say, it's all about politics and power, and they go, yes, and you don't have the next thing, which is really specific and really shows why thinking in this way will mean that you get better results, um, then, you're, then it won't stick. So, th so the, the next point is, do we do country labs where all the different sectors in a particular country um, get involved and try something out. It's no good just having the odd project. We've got those. It's what, what happens next in terms of proof of concept and, and, and demonstrating. Um, I think it's also really important that we get this out of the aid bubble and definitely out of the governance bubble. This is about politics. This is about how governments get changed and how governments run. So it's got, there's no reason why it should be stuck in the aid bubble. So yeah, who's going to be the bridge for those conversations? Um, 
I was thinking about the theory of change because no, that's what I do, and um, I was thinking about how do you how do you if you were designing your advocacy campaign around this report, um, I'd say pretty important is are you ready for and how well do you respond to critical junctures? And right now in the U.S., we're seeing a very big critical juncture. The aid budget could well be halved over the next few yeah, few months, depending on Congress and all the rest of it. Are you going to use that? Are you just going to lament the, the halving of U.S. aid, or are you going to say, well, this report can actually this could be a window of opportunity. I know that sounds a bit sick, but this could be a window of opportunity. Yeah, this, we, you will get better results with less money if you think like this and we can prove it. Suddenly you might have some ears uh, open which weren't there before. So thinking about it in terms of an advocacy strategy I think would help. And the final point, again, because I'm at ODI, you have to end with a suggestion for more research, right? So um, I think it would be very interesting to look at previous aid reform movements and why some have failed and some uh, have failed to get traction and some have got traction. I haven't seen anything like that. And it would be quite interesting to see what the past experience is, because I think learning from history is always very wise, going back to the 18th century, maybe. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Duncan. I love the way you're rude about everyone. <laughs> um, thank you. Very provocative, always. But very provocative and pointed questions. These questions about an advocacy strategy, how we're going to communicate around this and whether these three Cs will stick in somebody's mind, um, I think is definitely something worth coming back to. But let me turn to Mushtaq, who, as I mentioned earlier, is a very distinguished economist, has been working with political scientists for quite some time, and has been writing, you know, very, very, re you know, very interesting, very readable and, uh, um, and accessible uh, work, in, you know, in particular in countries like Bangladesh. And you've been working on this issue of institutions and growth for some time. So how do you take this WDR? Is it is it useful to you? Is it new? Um, where is it going to take us in this debate that you've been contributing for a long time? Thanks, Marta. Um, it's a hard act to follow after people like Duncan have spoken. Um, like the rest of the panel, I think this is important not because of something new that is being said which we didn't know about, but it's actually legitimizing things that we have been saying for a long time. And I'm going to just list some of these things and some of the questions that really need to be thought through more, and that's a challenge for all of us. The main thing that I think it legitimizes is this idea that it's not about the right policies, because the right policies seem to generate, or the right institutions, generate extremely different results in different places. And it's saying that we need to be mindful of the context of power in which we are talking. And that's, again, something I've been working, many of us have been working on for a long time. And the context of power matters because the powerful will distort what you're trying to do in very predictable ways. And if you haven't thought through that, then you've really wasted a lot of time and, and energy, right? So the first thing you have to ask ourselves as, as policy advisors, as policy makers, is who are the powerful in this place? And how are they organized? And if they're organized in this way, how do we design the policy to implement it and to achieve the outcome that we want? So this is, to me, so obvious. And so, I mean, I often was kind of ashamed at saying these things again and again in the political settlements analysis, but it seemed that it took a long time for people to actually make that mainstream, that it's not about getting the institutions right or the policies right, but understanding that dialectics between institutions, policies, and political power. Having said that, I think that there are a number of big issues which remain extremely challenging. 
and it it relates to some of the questions the minister raised and um, I was very fortunate I ran into him on the tube so we were actually discussing all these things as we <laughs> as we came here um, so the first is that these issues of governance and and inclusion and rights affect things at many different levels but it's simplifying to think of two big levels. One is at the level of society and the social order, the political settlement. And the political settlement is simply a description of who is powerful in a society and how powerful organizations have managed to share the rents between themselves in a way that allows the system not to collapse into violence. Right? Now this is usually a very vulnerable kind of arrangement. And when you, so at one level, I think what this report forces us to think is if you're working at that level of the social order, of human rights, of um, uh, you know, different sorts of rights and, and uh, inclusion and, and political inclusion, I think it's extremely important to ask ourselves when we do that, how is this going to open up new conflicts over rents and new conflicts over distribution? And how, will that, how is that likely to play out in terms of the counter-reactions of people who are powerful and who might be losing out as a result. And the consequences of that uh, attempt at, at more inclusion without thinking through the consequences might actually end, end you up with less inclusion, might actually result in a counter-revolution or the kind of Arab Spring event which has resulted in um, Mubarak being replaced by Morsi. right? And, and at the end of it, you haven't actually made much progress. So playing that at, at and at that global level, at the social order level, we actually understand this not very well. We don't know what kinds of interventions will shuffle the organizational distribution of power in societies in ways that are to the benefit of excluded groups, the poor, and so on, who, by the way, directly are not the players themselves in most cases, right? So you're talking about inclusion or exclusion between intermediate class groups and, and the elites who are shuffling for power and demanding more inclusion, but their conflicts affect the poor who are basically the kind of externalities of, of, that, of, the, of that process. So this is one thing to keep in mind, and I think it's extremely important. The second thing which, on which we know a lot more, and I think it's, it, it, that's where I think the report helps us to start um, legitimizing the work that we're already doing, is this idea that when you're designing interventions and, and policies, you really need to understand the social context and the political settlement that you're operating in, because what will work will depend on that configuration of power. And here, I think DFID has been at the forefront of a lot of work, and we've already got that worked into many of the programs we have. I'm just beginning a program on anti-corruption evidence with, uh, called ACE at SOAS. Peter Evans is here, I can see him. And, and that's the whole, the whole agenda is exactly that. We, we take specific countries and say, forget about doing anti-corruption commissions and um, rule of law changes at the, at the systemic level because this might not have any buyers whatsoever in that society. But are there sectoral issues where there are system changes you can make where powerful players in their own interest will support some kinds of rule enforcement which will make things better for them and for society. And if we can find those things, and we can, we've already started discovering lots of such opportunities, and that's what the evidence will generate, you find areas where actually you're working with the grain, to use an ODI phrase, and you're finding solutions where you have buy-in by the local elites in that sector who want change, 
but who are blocked because the policy structure and because the institutional structure is actually forcing them to behave in unproductive ways. Those are the opportunities that incrementally we need to uncover. And I think there are programs like ACE and other programs will help us to make progress on that. And I think, finally, I'm in that sense an incrementalist. And I think I read this document as the manifesto for the incrementalists. And I think that we need to really get away from the big bang wheel. One set of reforms will fix things forever. And as we were talking with the minister, the redistributive conflict between England and Scotland is still going on. And it will keep on going on. And societies always have to deal with these redistributive questions of different groups who want different things. There isn't a solution. But it's that incremental progress that is extremely important <coughs> And while this document doesn't give us specific answers to all the questions we have, it gives us the space to legitimize what we are doing and saying this is exactly what we are doing and the World Bank likes it. Thank you. Thank you, Mursa. Very, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, very clear, uh, very clear, and I think a reminder how important that legitimization is and how long things take. We just we looked at. You showed us how long it takes to translate a norm into practice, how long it takes to take these ideas that have been around for a long time to actually become mainstream and legitimize is something that uh, we shouldn't forget. Um, let me give the opportunity to the minister to reflect and say a few words, and I can't help to think that I'd quite like to hear from you what you make of this idea of the incrementalism and the fact that we are you know, we are, you know, it, the, the solution will take a long time. How does that resonate and sit with, you know, very urgent political priorities and indeed the political context in the UK um, that is rapidly evolving and changing? Um, and also maybe picking up on Duncan's point about the fact that we seem to have a fundamental problem about how do we communicate all this and how much, um, and, and how much of that is, um, you know, is, 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 is how, how would you go about doing that? Well, I mean, let, let, let me start with the Duncan problem, which is the, the well-duh uh, issue. So, so my comrade has pointed out uh, very clearly that um, uh, there is a danger here, which is everyone's like, okay, so it's about politics. We know that already. Um, this is a real problem. I mean, th this is a problem on almost any policy issue, which is that we all kind of think that we get it already. Uh, most of us haven't read the report, but we kind of feel that we get it. We don't have to. And that's something that is so difficult in practice to overcome. So let, let's say you were uh, trying to have a serious conversation with somebody about uh, the stabilization of Mosul. And you were to say to them, yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult to stabilize Mosul over the next three, four years. The basic response you would get is, well, duh, yeah, we all know that. You know, what's, what's the problem here? Well, of course, you don't really know it. You haven't really thought about it. You haven't really gone into it any detail. And the problem here is that it's all very well saying, yeah, we get it's all about politics. But most of the people saying that don't know anything about politics <laughs> and particularly don't know anything about politics in the specific context in which they're operating. It's extremely rare, uh, particularly for internationals operating in other countries, but even for local nationals to actually understand the texture of politics at a national or a subnational level. I mean, what do I mean by that? And I'm just going to sort of try to use two anecdotes to try to illustrate why I think this report is so important, but also why it's so difficult uh, to take its lessons forward. Um, the answer, of course, in, in a sense, uh, to the challenge of Welder is that that circle that we saw on the screen about moving through a process of diagnosis, assessment, design, implementation, evaluation, adaption, 
and then back to diagnosis again, is a really good way of reminding ourselves that you've got to get a long way beyond the world uh, into the meat and the depths and the detail of the thing. But I'm very aware as a, a British politician, even within my own country, you know, I, I speak the language fluently, I've grown up in this country, I uh, have a certain amount of knowledge of the historical and cultural background of this country. I had no idea until I became a member of parliament what politics was really like. And I'd been a civil servant, right? I mean, I, I had worked for politicians. I had spent a lot of my life thinking about politics and public service. I had very, very clear ideas about what members of parliament should do, what ministers should do. And I can assure you, I was completely deluded, I mean, until I actually uh, got into the job. And it's very, very difficult, even for me now, to try to formalize the way in which policy is made and is not made. Uh, so, so very trivially, just, just very quickly on the British domestic uh, example, to understand what parliament is in practice in Britain. Uh, so often it feels like um, something which for, in Britain at least, for, for eight, nine months, the whips do their job, nothing very much happens, all the government legislation goes through, and then suddenly, uh, once every nine months or so, the whole thing wakes up, uh, maybe like a sleeping Labrador by a fire in a fury of barking, and the government legislative program is suddenly turned on its head. Uh, again, within the department, what exactly is the relationship between the minister and the civil servant? The kind of Sir Humphrey, yes, minister model doesn't quite capture it. It often feels as though, in fact, power is located nowhere, as though everybody's walking around assuming that somebody else uh, is, is really uh, in charge. Um, uh, in addition, you know, what, do, what do interest groups mean? What do lobby groups mean? I mean, we tend to imagine, I, 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 somebody was saying to me yesterday that, uh, about lobbies and interest groups, that, that Pancake Day, Shrove Tuesday yesterday, was a, a conspiracy by, uh, by, 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 the, uh, by the dairy uh, poultry complex. Uh, backed by Big Lemon. Um, uh, but actually, uh, in, in, in the everyday uh, world, um, it, it often is the case, for example, when I was the DEFRA minister, that you would expect, I was an environment minister, that the real lobby and pressure groups coming in to see you are, um, are the kind of big businesses who are trying to trash the environment. Actually, the people who you're mostly focused on are, in fact, the NGOs. Uh, it's the Royal Society of Protection of Birds. It's the World Wildlife Foundation who are really making you wake up and focus because they're the guys that are deploying. It'll be Oxfam, who's probably much more likely to be getting into my office than actually steering and shifting discussion than the kind of impression that one might have outside government of who actually has the leave of power. Now, let, let me just come back, though, just very quickly to the thing that really interests me in this. So... Um, Luis Felipe, in his conversation, has been talking about the ways in which we deal with exclusion, capture, and clientelism within a developing country. And, and I just wanted to run through a specific example that I went through in my own life in order to illustrate why I find this so difficult to think about, and I'd be very interested in what people thought from the audience. So uh, I found myself in southern Iraq in 2003, dealing with a situation where I was in a province called Misan in southern Iraq, where it seemed to me pretty straightforward that a lot of the problems in the province came from exclusion, capture, and clientelism. In particular, a big tribal group called the Elbow Muhammad had managed to get their hands on power, and all the jobs in the employment program went to the Elbow Muhammad, and everybody in the police was from the Elbow Muhammad. 
And outside on the streets were two major groups demonstrating. One of them were uh, the Bada Brigades, which is an Iranian-linked militia group, and the other were the Sadrists. And they're both outside demanding access. Now, my gut instincts, like Luis Felipe's, are that the solution to this is to get them inside the tent. So huge amount of energy in trying to set up structures to ensure that instead of this thing being run by this narrow tribal group, we have a much bigger and more diverse group of people involved in the local provincial council. I also put a great deal of effort into trying to make sure that we had a decent free press, that we really allowed freedom of association, that we allowed people to organize demonstrations. I thought these would all be good in the long term for stability. Um, However, what, of course, I faced was people saying to me very, very quickly, hey, wait a second, these groups, the Sadrists, the Bada Brigades, these are extreme Islamist groups allied to foreign countries who incidentally are out to get you, right? They're out to kill British and American people. Uh, They're funding terrorist groups. They have extremely discriminatory views towards women. And they're violent armed groups. Do not bring them into these councils, because if you bring them into these councils, you're going to give them legitimacy. You're going to give them more strength. And anyway, they don't really matter. Right? So one of the questions uh, Luis Felipe posed was, oh, actually, Mushtaq posed, was the question of who has power? Right? How do you know in these kind of contexts whether the Sadrists matter or the Bada Brigades really matter? could point out in an election, the satirists get 85% of the vote, but everybody says, oh, no, 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 they just bought the vote. The whole thing is corrupt. Don't pay any attention to the elections anyway, right? (laughs) You then get them into the council, which eventually we succeeded in doing, and other things begin to come off the rails. They begin to insist, for example, that women cannot attend the council. We insist that women do attend the council. Women attend, they don't speak. We then encourage women to speak, and then the women are killed. Literally, these groups that we have in the council are putting them out of cars and shooting them in the head on the side of the road. At which point, all the tribal group that you've begun dealing with at the beginning of the conversation is saying to you, I told you so in the first place. Why on earth did you bring these people in? This is completely crazy. You've just empowered a bunch of crazy armed groups. Now, Mushtaq raised this in relation to the Muslim Brotherhood, the Ikhwan in Egypt, right, where we went through a very, very similar cycle. So I wanted to just use that as an example of the problems in practice of trying to create Uh, deal with exclusion, deal with capture, deal with clientelism, try to create a more inclusive process, bring people in. And finally, to point out that, of course, even once with a considerable amount of energy, one has tried to solve this at a provincial level. If this hasn't actually been solved at the level of national politics, almost everything you've done at the provincial level becomes completely irrelevant. Because a new election happens, the Baghdad government sends down a new army unit, the guys that you hope that you've managed to bring into the process are all suddenly excluded through some new process, uh, and more people get killed. On which, back to our moderator. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and I'm sorry to rush this bit along, but we're a little bit late, and I really want to make sure that we have a chance for a discussion. I know all of you on the panel will want to co- go back to the minister. We'll have a chance in a minute. So I suggest we take a handful of questions now so the panel can get back. Um, and also have the opportunity to um, come back to the minister. But also, um, Duncan needs to leave pretty soon. So if any of you have specific questions for Duncan, ask it now. Um, so let me take a question from there, from uh, Taylor. <coughs> oh, sorry. Uh, Taylor Brown. Um, my question is both for the bank and for um, the, the minister, which is, goes back to Lenny's point, which was about being adaptive 
um, or taking this sort of approach that's apparent in, in the report requires a fundamental shift or a shift to, from a command and control sort of approach to one that is more learning, more adaptive, more flexible. Um, at the same time, there are headwinds from, uh, against international development and challenges related to keeping things simple and focusing and delivering on sort of basic results within um, development. So I wonder how it is that DFID and the bank can balance those, which goes back to the point that I think Marta raised in her question. Thank you very much. And let's go Sheila and Brett, and then I'll come to on the other side in the next round. Let me just get back to the panel on the first. Sheila. Uh, thank you, uh, Sheila Page, ODI. I really wanted to take the opposite point of view from Duncan. So I think this goes too far towards being clear. I thought I was just misinterpreting the introduction, but the uh, final anecdote about Mauritania actually illustrates this. If the World Bank discusses something with Mauritania, that's not influence, that's power. And I think there's a real problem in the whole uh, discussion between, of, of definitions, of where the boundary is between influence of power, of where it is between democracy and clientelism. The example you give that clientelism is responding to what voters want, well, yes, it may be, but on the other hand, what else do you do about voters? And the uh, function and form and the rule of law. I don't actually believe it's a matter of fact that every society aspires to the rule of law. Many aspire to getting things done, regardless of the law. And your assumption that we should be dealing with uh, function, not form, goes a very long way in that direction. Now, I know you see the difference. You can tell the difference when you see it, like pornography. <coughs> but I do think that we need to be a little more careful about drawing these lines, because other people will draw them in different places. And your cover shows that it's all a matter of perspective, but still. OK, thank you. One more there. Then I'll come back to the panel, including to Duncan, because he needs to leave, and then we'll get another round on this side, I promise. Yes. Um, when I read... Sorry, can uh, you all introduce yourselves before? Teddy Brett, uh, London School of Economics. Uh, when I read political science in 1956, <coughs> I, re uh, I read John Stuart Mill, Representative Government, which stated that the rule of law, democracy, and all of these processes were essential for effective development. Uh, nothing has changed. Uh, he was right then. The World Bank is right now. If we can get a society that practices these processes, we're clearly going to be better off than if we can't. The political problem is the problem of managing conflicting interests. And I think the, minister, the minister's example of what that means in terms of it, this notion that somehow including more people in the political process is, is the solution is problematic. Because, of course, what politics is about is not about compromise and getting people to collect. It's about controlling excessive demands. We have a society in which very poor people want more things. They can't have them. Politics is mainly about stopping them from having them, but also managing a system which enables different groups to compete in ways that are satisfactory to them. So the, we need to recognize that politics is about managing conflict. Mm -hmm. And managing conflict means dealing with different groups that are competing. And classically, what we are trying to do in Mosul is to kill an, in, an inclusive political group that have got in the way. And what we're trying to do elsewhere is to help them. So that's what the whole process is about. 
The question <coughs> is we need to understand that process better and recognize that we are also a political okay. agent Thank in that you. process. Thank, Thank you. you. Sorry, I need to, we need to try to keep the questions a bit short to make sure others have the chance. Can I get back to the panel and specifically to Lise Philippe and Dan Cousin, he's leaving and others can come back um, in the second round. And also I know that Louise, you wanted to get back to the minister on some yeah, of these so questions. Time is, time is short, so I will try to, to be brief, but address some of the questions that are related to, to these comments to the question of, of the minister. For example, about the idea of um, whether this is an excuse for inaction. Um, I want to emphasize one of the elements we discuss in the report is this idea of reshaping the, the preferences. And yes, I mean, we can agree that the, the World Bank has the influence of sitting down at the table and talking to the people. But it matters while you're doing that, what you say and how you do it. And the idea of trying to reshape the, the, the thinking, going, instead of saying this is the best practice you should implement, you should take this best practice. The idea of putting in, you know, in the in the in the people's mind the idea that process policy process matters as much as policy outcome uh, is very important, uh, and maybe the effect is not immediate. Uh, and in this reshaping of preferences, I we always mention this this point that if we talk um, uh, among economists and certainly within the bank, and you mention power, most people think you are talking about electricity. Uh, this uh, change in the way we think uh, uh, is not trivial, and it's important uh, that we give um, more structure to the idea of why power matters. Yes, we know, I mean, we know, for, if, you, if you have read um, uh, Adam Smith and, and Marx, maybe there is nothing new in social sciences, but the point is, it matters on how you shape the way people discuss these issues in, 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 our, in our institutions. Um, so one final point is, if you think that this idea that the development process is uneven and generates tensions constantly, uh, which has been discussed here, and the way you adapt to those tensions at the margin leads you in one path or the other, then what you do is as important as what you don't do, because it leads you to that different path. So in that sense, inaction uh, is not an option, because you, you, you need to decide how you adapt uh, um, uh, to those tensions. Otherwise, you are basically uh, going in a path that is not perhaps the one you want to, to, uh, to have. So that, that, that would be my point in terms of inaction. This perspective uh, is, is, uh, is, is rather the opposite. The, the idea is that inaction is not an option. But I, I will leave it there. Uh, we'll come back to the question. Duncan, do you have anything to add just, at this point? Just one final thought. Um, huge thanks for the, the contribution. It's been really interesting and for the report. Um, it would be in keeping with the spirit of the report if what happens next is more sort of providing the report as a platform on which different things emerge rather than trying to control the process from now on. And I think it might also be more feasible, given the, the political economy constraints within the bank and within aid agencies, to somehow make this a public good and see what people do with it and encourage that process, and that might produce better results than trying to make this an advocacy campaign run by the bank. Thank you, and we'll hear from Debbie from the bank in a minute on some final reflections. Thank you. Let me uh, open to the floor again, and I'll start on this side this, uh, this time. Remember to uh, be here at the front, and then Peter, remember to say who you are. <coughs> and if there are audiences online who want to pose a question, please do, I'll, uh, I'll read them out. <coughs> I'm Shaheen Anam from Bangladesh. I'm a development practitioner, I work uh, on uh, human rights and governance in the field, where uh, we experience people's fundamental rights being violated because of 
lack of governance, and that's putting it very, very broadly. My question is to the World Bank that congratulations for this report, but how will it change the way the country office works in the country? How will it inform, and that it, it's a question that the minister asks is how do we embed it into the institutions? And unless that happens, uh, I don't know how this, you know, how we take this report. Because uh, we, I know the bank has made a huge commitment to citizens' engagement. But uh, at the field level, we don't see that happening. So will this report help World Bank to negotiate differently with the government? Thank you. Uh, that is my question. And to Dr. Mushtaq about incremental changes. We are a bit kind of impatient with the incremental changes <laughs> because we do a lot of work at the grassroots level, bringing about institutional changes at the policy, at, at the supply side. And, uh, you know, and there are great examples of institutions, the strengthening of institutions using social accountability tools. And yet it remains incremental and it does not impact that commitment Thank that you. is required at the top. Okay. Thank you. The mic is. Um, thank you very much. Um, question at the back, please, and then another one at the back here. Please keep it quite short if you can, so we can take a few more contributions. Okay, thanks. thanks. Um, I'm Peter Owen. I'm formerly a DFID governance advisor, now retired. These ideas are very familiar. I had a question for the minister and the bank. Um, given that you're going to emphasise a more adaptive approach and learning more about the environment you're working with um, and experimenting. How are you going to find the bureaucratic space for this and to square it with the, um, the enthusiasm for quote-unquote results, bearing in mind the, uh, that governance is a 500-year process and after sort of three or four years of um, this adaptive business, you might not have very much more than some subtle changes in the policy environment and a better understanding. Are you going to Thank be able you. to take on the Daily Mail and, uh, and get some more support for this sort of approach? Thank you. Um, a few questions in there. Um, is there any questions here at the center? Oh, sorry, one at the back there, yes. Hi, uh, Chris Swallow, Active Strategy. Um, taking from your point, Minister, and looking at the sort of wringing of hands we had in Syria of who do we support, do we think we need a fundamental look at what the political settlement is? Do we need to look at a, a different way of understanding that in broader governance? Okay. Thank you. Uh, let's get back to the panel and then back to the audience in a minute. Let me start with Mushtaq. There are a couple of questions directed to you, and I'm sure you will have something to say about this, this question of political settlements, and then the Minister, Luis, and maybe Lenny on this, also on the question of whether this adaptation uh, leads to anything concrete. Thank you. I think that question about the political settlement is critical because I think it's been misunderstood, I think, by many practitioners as some kind of agreement that elites sign. And if you can get people to sign something and have an agreement, that's your political settlement. I think this is a really fundamental misconception. To me, a political settlement does not have to be underpinned by any formal agreements at all. A political settlement is simply a distribution of power between groups and, and interests in a society that is viable in the sense that it is reproducible because the rents that the different groups are capturing is reproducible. In, in other words, it's linked to some productive process that allows the system to reproduce. If you don't have that, you can have any number of agreements and it will collapse after two days. And if you look at countries 
which are advanced countries, you don't see any formal agreement between the elites. But these countries are reproducing with intense rivalry between different interests and different parties. And yet, there is a commitment to a rules-based society. Why? Because the way, in the, 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 way the rights are, are constructed, the access to rents is reproducible, right? This is the challenge. So when the minister asked the question about who to include, the question about who to include is not about, you know, there are people outside the tent and they should be inside the tent. But if we include these people, is that a viable system? And in context like Iraq and Syria and, and so on, the real problem is you don't have a productive economy. So if you don't have a productive economy and you include people, it's really about redistributing a fixed um, set of rents which are coming from oil or aid or something, and that's not viable. So I think what people really need to start thinking in very creative ways is combining productive agendas with the inclusion strategy. In other words, you need to include people who are actually going to bring something to the table in terms of what they're producing, even if it is really trivial stuff. And then you can construct a political settlement. So please do not think of political settlements as agreements between elites. This is not the right way of thinking about it. The question of incrementalism. And the question of incrementalism is, unfortunately, I'm more with Peter. I mean, this is a long-term process. If you look at the history of Europe and the history of advanced countries, things took a very long time to get better. But this doesn't mean inaction. So all the stuff that you are doing and others are doing in Bangladesh is extremely important. And here, I would just add something about the political settlement and inclusion. So in a place like Bangladesh, you have a regime that is excluding people, but the people they're excluding could be included and the system would be more stable. In other words, Bangladesh is not like Syria or, or uh, Iraq. It's a, it's a viable economy, and, and there are people who are being excluded who, had they been included, would have resulted in a more stable system. So inclusion is not always a bad thing. Inclusion is a vitally important part of creating more stable systems, and that's precisely the analytical tool we need to understand. In this case, is the exclusion damaging for, for political sustainability, in which case we should be pushing for inclusion. In other cases, it might not be the right answer right now, and a much more emphasis on production and productivity might be the answer. Thank you. So this is extremely important um, discussion. Thank you. And on that note, maybe let's get to the minister with yeah. a couple of questions that it touches on your example. I mean, let, let me just um, uh, try to nuance a little bit. I mean, I, I, I completely understand where Mushtaq is coming from, but I, I think my emphasis would be a little bit different. Um, I think it's dangerous to imagine this purely in terms of a productive growing economy and the distribution of rents as though Fundamentally, you can understand politics in these contexts in terms of whether the pie is growing and how much of the pie you get. Uh, these guys that uh, I'm talking about, uh, the Southern, for example, trying to get into the room, yes, maybe some of them are basically interested in trying to get more cash for their supporters, but that isn't the way that it actually comes across on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, what people are really talking about are often issues of religion, uh, issues of social norms, issues the position of foreigners in their society. I think this was maybe even the mistake potentially of the Remain side in the Brexit campaign. They imagined that uh, people are fundamentally motivated by uh, treasury documents on exactly what GDP growth is going to be or what it's going to impact it's going to have on your incomes. Economists maybe think like that. Uh, 
I, I think actually creating an inclusive settlement, it's not enough to have a growing economy and to think about how you distribute the cash within that growing economy. What makes it so difficult is it's often about a clash of values, including in many of these countries, clashes of religious values. Um, but but that's, that's a nuance on, on Mushtaq's point. Um, on the broader issue of how you create bureaucratic space in order to do this, this is very tough. Um, uh, my, my gut instinct is that we need to really invest in building up uh, our own capacity within government to have people who spend much longer periods in other people's countries, who are prepared to take more risk in terms of security, spend less time in guarded compounds, put more energy into learning local languages. Uh, that involves having, and, and learning languages not just because linguistic ability it gives you, but because the, actually the practice of spending 12 months living in someone else's country learning the language is very important for developing your cultural understanding. Um, and in order to do this, uh, you need to have uh, more stuff. You probably need to contract out less. Uh, it's very tempting to imagine that you can simply oh, we don't need to speak this language fluently because there's somebody in the LSE who speaks this language fluently, so we'll give them a six-month contract and somehow that will make us speak the language fluently. Um, uh, so having these things uh, developed and really making the argument for why it matters to the world and the public that over uh, the next 20, 30 years we have these capacities and we learn who to valorize and praise. I mean, I think the way we get this cultural change is by saying, here is an amazing example of somebody working for UNICEF or ICRC in the field, or this is an amazing example of a civil society organization in Bangladesh. These are the ways in which we would like you to operate. This is the kind of knowledge we'd like you to have. This is the kind of engagement with communities we'd like you to have. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Lenny, um, one final word from you, including what you just heard from the minister, reflecting what you've seen from within uh, DFID and other organizations. Thank you. I mean, I think for those who are interested in whether donor agencies like DFID can take some of these ideas on board, I would say you can read our report. There are copies outside and it will be online later this week, which essentially reflects on what we have seen kind of following this, this process over the last couple of years. And I would say, you know, it's a sort of glass half full at the moment. To me, I think there are a whole range of projects and programs are applying some of these ideas in different sectors around different issues. There, is, there are interesting shifts being made to think about kind of how procurement processes work, how results measures are constructed to reflect some of this. But I think as the minister has said, it's true that, um, that agencies are still falling down in terms of whether they really have that local knowledge, understanding and connections to think about how they you know, genuinely facilitate sort of locally-led change. And to me, what's needed to address that is this, this really needs to be embedded at sort of strategic levels. It requires senior leaders and managers at different levels to really be creating a culture that it has an expectation of learning of that local knowledge that rewards it and prioritizes it. And that's the sort of future um, reform agenda. Again, there's lots on paper that supports this, but I think it's putting it into practice that matters. Thank you. And I couldn't think of a better way to hand over to Deborah Wetzel for some closing remarks. Deborah is a senior, the Senior Director of the Governance and Global Practice of the World Bank, and so it couldn't be a better place to offer some final thoughts about how we take this agenda forward and what's next for the WDR. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you so much. Is this on already? Yes. Okay. So, um, yes, I inherit 
the report as the senior director is, uh, for governance at the World Bank. Um, but first, let me start by thanking the minister for being here with us. Um, you bring some incomparable experiences to be able to help us think through the report and the challenges. Um, let me also express my deep gratitude to DFID and to ODI, not only for hosting us here today, but for being partners with us for many decades. I've been in the business for three decades. Every region I've been in, every place I've been, I know ODI fellows, and I work closely with my DFID counterparts. And your interaction with us as an institution has been really fundamental, particularly with the work we do related to governance. And finally, uh, a very heartfelt thank you for your support on IDA 18 and our agenda related to fragile and conflict states. These are extremely important issues for us and will be driving forward uh, the work we do. Also, my thanks to Marta, to Lenny, to Mushtaq, and to Duncan for the comments. We work with you, you prod us, make us think, and it's a dialogue that's extremely important to us. So a few things um, from the perspective of the bank. Um, there's been a lot said today about how the report legitimizes this work um, in the community. Um, it's important to recognize that the report also plays a role within the World Bank. So Luis Felipe started by saying, we do these world development reports, they give 20 years of a stock take, but that then they set the agenda. And there is work to be done for us within the institution to say, okay, here are some, think some thoughts. Here's how we are looking at these issues related to governance, power, politics, and what they mean for how we do our business. <coughs> Formally, we are not a political institution. We cannot be a political institution. We have a very diverse board of directors, <laughs> formally. Ah, okay. okay? So there was a qualifier. Practically speaking, we know that we're on the ground engaging and that we have a role in our interactions with governance and governments. Many of our colleagues work in sectoral areas and country areas, and so one of the big challenges for us is to think through how within the bank and outside of the bank we disseminate and work on the report. <coughs> to think through these concepts, work through incremental nature versus big bang, technical solutions versus understanding how particular concepts may take hold in the imaginations of our colleagues. So the three C's for some people are going to be meaningful and useful. Uh, for others, they will find these concepts of exclusion, capture, and clientelism something that is more real. And then the challenge to us is, okay, we've identified these as issues. How do we help our colleagues, be they country staff on the ground or sectoral staff working on the real power, you know, electricity, um, education, health, transport, you name it. How do we help them identify and think through how those dysfunctions affect results and how we might be able to work on the positive aspects of governance, be it trust, legitimacy, cohesiveness. How do we help engender those type of things? Um, so for us, it's very important as a, a, a report on governance. It is even more important as a point of interaction between us and our colleagues. So this message of getting governance out of its bubble is extremely important because this is really about how you make public policy, uh, which is fundamentally about governance, but it's also about a lot of other things and how we do what we do. So that will be important and, and something uh, for us that's uh, keen to be thinking about. We are in a world of rapid change. So as we talk about all the old style types of governance and politics and John Stuart Mill and others, the thing that we're also thinking about is how technology is changing this equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So you see the, the 
whether it's people on their phones, whether it's atomistic interaction, coordination across groups, thinking about how that changes the dynamic and amplifies things both positively and negatively is another factor that we're trying to think about and weigh in. Um, we have a lot of ideas about how we might go forward working on this. I guess the most uh, useful thing to say is that the suggestion that uh, um, Duncan made about having some type of platform, there's a lot in this report. So you can read it 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, you'll find every chapter, everything, it, it, it gets better with age is what I've been telling the team. Um, and so how we take the different pieces of it, how each chapter contributes to this discussion is something that it makes sense to have a platform around knowledge, around sharing, around ideas. Responding to the specific questions, how are we going to use this on the ground with our country directors? How are we going to uh, change the way we do business? Um, I joke with the team that we need to apply the report to the bank. So what do decision makers say? How do we interact with them? How do we get country directors to understand that even though Yes, duh, they deal with the politics day in and day out. There may be systematic ways in which they can think about it that could help them change how they program their activities. Uh, yes, we're keen on looking at more adaptive and flexible approaches, but the pressures that were raised by uh, Peter, I guess, um, are real. So the balance between results and just, okay, let's be flexible is not something we can ignore given our authorizing environment. So there's a whole set of things that uh, we will want to engage with you to work on, to think through how we take the great ideas in this report forward, how we evolve them and implement them within the bank, but then also how we engage with our partners both uh, here and on the ground to be able to advance and make progress, which by default will be incremental. I mean, I, I also am a, 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 a fan of the uh, manifest, manifesto for incrementalism, is that what you called it? So, Anyway, let me stop there, but we, we really will work closely with, uh, with you and others in terms of how we take forward the, the content of the report. Thank, Thank you. Sir. Thank you, Deborah. <laughs> Thank you. So it's, uh, it's just past 11.30, despite what this watch is, I realize my colleagues now put a watch was about five minutes fast, so you get, you, you, you get the pressure. Um, let me thank on behalf of ODI, Alex and myself and everyone, um, uh, the audience uh, online and here and the panel, uh, the World Bank and DFID for partnering with us in this event and more broadly on this agenda for so long and for so many years to come to make it a reality, and especially the minister. Um, for the time, for staying, and for particularly sharing with such honesty and candor is reflection, which I think is is invaluable. Uh, my final thought is we had, you know, glass half full or half empty is always a lively debate. I would say that the fact that we actually, this is the second time in a year that we had a, a state minister come to ODI to talk about those issues in relation to policy and policy making is very significant. We've been talking about this agenda on policy and governance for a long time. Is now part of what we're all trying to do and to have you know, politicians interested in engaging the debate um, is new, is tangible, is something that proves that um, this matters and it has a life ahead. So with that note of optimism, thank you very much. Until next time we come to it. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Music